Welcome to the Farcast. Over 200 episodes and still going strong, bringing you experts and insiders to help you navigate the investing landscape. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, April the 7th, 2022, the first Farcast of the second quarter. I'm glad that first quarter's behind us, folks. Uh, we saw markets correct, of course, down a bit, but not horribly. I mean, in fact, there was a pretty strong rebound in the month of March, uh, so that the S&P was down about 5% or so, uh, and the NASDAQ was down a little bit closer to 9%, 10%, somewhere in there. Uh, pretty big gap, but boy, they rallied back big time. The S&P the was down 13% at the low, and the NASDAQ was down over 20 clearly in bear market territory. Fed, of course, now says they're going to raise 50 basis points. Lael Brainerd says we're going, we're going higher. And the big deal is there, she was a dove. She was always saying, well, maybe a little more monetary stimulus. And now she's saying 50 basis points, and we're going to shrink the balance sheet. And the new jawboning from the Fed says we're going to uh, tighten that, tighten those rates higher. Uh, Wells Fargo this morning expecting a 50 basis point hike in May and another 50 basis point hike in June, another three 25 basis points over the course of the year and another three next year, 250 or so to on the uh, Fed funds rate. And uh, that would take the 10 year treasury somewhere over 325. Uh, and certainly the Fed funds rate over 3% uh, by the end of next year. Very interesting out of Wells Fargo, um, but consistent with what the Fed's been saying. Seems to be a little bit of panic on the part of the Fed here, like they just suddenly discovered inflation. Uh, oh, and it's bad. Uh, I don't quite understand the level of newfound panic that they find themselves in some sort of a corner. I suspect a lot of this is political. As we cover each week, Wall Street, Washington, and the world, we're going to our panel of experts today, and we're going to sort this out for you. And you are lucky, ladies and gentlemen, as am I. Uh, Jim Urio is our first guest uh, from the Chicago Exchange. Jim Urio, a great uh, friend of, of mine, but also a fan, Farcast fan favorite. Boy, that's a tongue twister this early in the morning, Farcast <laughs> fan favorite. Uh, Jim Urio, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Michael. Glad you're here. We're watching that 10 year. It gets up over 260 and we've got the dollar strong and uh, futures are bounding back this morning. But yesterday was not good for the Nasdaq stocks. Uh, the Dow was down as well. What do you make of this market? What's the Fed doing? Tell us, Jim. OK, well, you mentioned Lyle Brainerd. When Lyle Brainerd starts talking hawkish, they send her out there to just really have everyone focus and have everyone understand the Fed's resolve. They really, at this moment, they do plan on all those hikes. And I emphasize at this moment because you know, things can change very quickly. The best laid plans, particularly of the Fed, you know, often go awry. But now in the same week, we had Lyle Brainerd turn hawkish. I don't know if you, and I know Bill Dudley's no longer on the Fed, but I don't know if you saw the article yesterday where he's talking about reverse. Yeah, that, it's just amazing to me, which by the way, 
if he would have made the argument that reversing the wealth effect would start to draw the 3 million extra boomers that retired based on enthusiastic equity predictions going forward, the 3 million that retired um, over the last two years, bringing them back into the labor market, I would actually agree with them. But that's not the point. The point is when they start talking about, oh, yeah, we probably push financial, uh, I mean, um, risk assets up, now we can push them down. That sort of hubris to think that they can control uh, assets, investable assets, to me is terrifying. And it just underscores the fact that the psychology behind this and includes the inflation aspect of it. For 10 years, they sounded like, and I know I've, I've overused this metaphor, but they sounded like the guy at the barbecue trying to light the coals and couldn't get the inflation going and finally dumps the whole can of lighter fluid on it, and lights it up to get inflation. Well, here we are. We have the coals going right now, and I don't think they know what to do. But I think based on the two things we've heard, I think what they're saying is we are willing to see some rockiness in the stock market for the next couple of months, perhaps to the tune of down 20% even in the S&P before we flinch. There is a point where they were flinched. I think that they are trying to tell you it's further than you think. Does that make sense? It makes great sense. But Jim, I'm, I'm still not willing to give them credit for having really started inflation under the way, uh, underway. I mean, I don't think after all of the stimulus and trillions of dollars of stimulus over the year and the doubling of the national debt and the balance sheet for the Fed at $9 trillion, they still weren't able to really get demand to increase very much. It took a pandemic, it took a complete shutdown and a huge supply chain blockage. And the supply chain blockage and, and the scarcity of goods and unavailability of things along with the cash in place. But it's it, without that, I think, igniting of all of that lighter fluid, uh, they'd still be trying to get it going. So maybe they really weren't all that responsible for getting all of this inflation started. I don't think they were, I don't think they really knew how to engineer it. It happened to them. Well, now let's see if you could stop it. Okay. Just because Volcker was able to do it and you follow his playbook, it doesn't mean you're going to get it the same way, particularly when inflation is this much of a global issue, I think. So we got to watch and see this. But Jim, I, I've been suggesting in, in, in print and other places, which makes people unhappy when I say this, I don't see how we avoid a recession over the next couple of years. I don't think we see it this year. Uh, in fact, we're still seeing some earnings expand and the consumers still have spendable cash to continue to fuel something of an upside demand. But I, I don't see how all of this works out with, with if, if, if Wells Fargo's right and we get above 3%, on Fed funds rates. I don't see how we don't go into a recession. What do you think? I think we are going into a recession too. I agree with you 100%. I don't like to cite the yield curve. You know, the yield curve is inverted in a couple different spots. I think that that messaging from the yield curve would be a lot, lot more um, stronger to me if rates were going down and the curve inverted as opposed to rates going up. When you say the consumer is still strong, I think the top third of consumers are extremely strong, have tons of money and are willing to spend it. And I think we'll, that will soften the blow. But I think for the you know, 70 to 80 percent of workers whose real net wages are going down because wage increases are not have not um, increased with inflation over the last eight months. I think for them, the recession's already begun. But before we see an actual recession, I agree with you. I think it's a couple quarters away because they always come later than we think. I do believe it's coming. It's, again, you know, Lacey Hunt for the last year said inflation was, well, starting a year ago, inflation wasn't what we need to worry about. Deflation what we, what we needed to worry about. And he was wrong. And no one likes to criticize Lacey Hunt because he's you know a genius, obviously. But now, just starting this week, I could start to see a situation where we begin to go into a recession. The supply problems write themselves at the same time. At the same time, the Fed is increasing, increasing, and making a mistake to the upside 
And then all of a sudden, I don't know if deflation is the right word, but certainly disinflation. On average, we have an inflation in this country. Uh, we have a recession in this country about every five years. It's been, uh, you know, the, the, the 2020 recession, I don't think it counts. I'm sorry. It, it, just, it just doesn't count. It was too short. It was too this. It was too uh, manufactured. It was kind of a manufactured recession there, sort of. But, but anyway, it doesn't, doesn't count. We, we, we bounced too fast, too hard. We didn't experience what a real recession does. But every five years, and the economy expands, and the economy contracts. The problem that we've been in here since, I think, the Greenspan era is that the Fed has tried to save us from any kind of consequence of markets and normal economic cycles. They don't let the cycle go through its normal cycle because they never want those downturns. And then they exacerbate these downturns. So I said for at least 10 years, ladies and gentlemen, and I think Jim Urio has joined me in saying a lot of this, when we have seen programs like TARP, everything going back to the 0809 financial crisis, all of the various spending, all of the various ways that the Fed is used to get money in the market. The one thing that you've heard us say is, this is all great, it's working, but we, we don't understand are the consequences. We've never done this before. We don't understand the consequences yet, and we will see the consequences sooner or later. I'm thinking we're gonna to begin to see the consequences here, Jim. Well, you know, I can take it back to 25, 30 years and say an activist Fed is trying, you know, their job is supposed to be to take the sharp edge off a recession, not prevent recessions. And we've seen them just bend over backwards to prevent recessions. They prevent them. They should be every five years. Instead, they make them every 10 to 12 years. And then we get something like the great financial crisis, which was way deeper and worse than it should have been. I understand the psychology behind wanting to do something. These are men of action, but it's silly. It, it, it just let markets do what they're supposed to do, and we'd have been far better off. Now, you're saying, is it the reckoning time now? Well, that's the real, the real question. I don't believe it's the reckoning time now because I look around, and when, we, when the, great, the years leading up to the financial crisis, you saw the wrong people getting leveraged up into real estate. You'd see your electrician brother-in-law with five properties, and he became a house flipper. I don't see that in any specific asset now, and I'm not saying it's not there. I'm just saying I've looked pretty hard and haven't seen it. So I think when the, the day of reckoning comes now, because there has to be an unwinding of assets and real estate is the worst because, you know, with stock market, you press a button. Stock market could go down 36% in a day. And I say 36% because that's essentially what it did go down at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and, and all of a sudden, then you're at, you've had your new reevaluation level and now it's time to heal. Well, real estate, you can't do that because it takes it takes months and months and months to even wind out of it. That's why that took so many years. I don't believe it's a nasty day of reckoning. I believe there is a recession. I don't believe it's going to be something that the that the minstrels are going to write songs about in a hundred years. I think it's going to be a run of the mill recession. <laughs> you know, the Dallas. I don't know why I say some of those things. I don't know where that comes. Yeah, from. but Sorry, you know, that. I love that you say them because you know it's it's great for the it's great for it's great for uh, media. It's great. It's it, you know it makes us all smile when you say them. But and we know what you're talking about. Everybody knows it. It, it resonates. The the Dallas Fed came out with a report that said that real estate was becoming unhinged. Um, by the way, you also referred to these uh, bureaucrats as men of action. Boy, do I think you're generous. I mean, these are economists <laughs> and bureaucrats. They are the farthest things that you can imagine of men of action. They, they fold their hands securely across their stomachs and, you know, to kick their heads back and, and go, hmm, hmm. They do that a lot. Uh, I'm not sure. Hmm. Let me think about it. Hmm. Uh, but uh, the Dallas Fed said that real estate was a, was was like an 07 bubble and had begun on become unhinged. 
Why would a Federal Reserve Bank use the word unhinged? I mean, Jeez. quit hiring economists. Somebody needs to hire an English major in there. Explain what that word means. Not a good word, unhinged. But Jim, we don't have speculation, right? And we don't have a deteriorating credit market. We don't have no doc loans. We don't have the people with all the subprime debt that are just going out and getting three mortgages at once on somebody's signature that they've never proven a financial statement. That was all true in 07. That's not true now. I think this is a supply issue. There's not, there are not enough houses for sale. I mean, what am I missing? Are the Fed right or is far right? No, you are completely right. And the, the leverage and the positioning in the real estate market is not the same as it was in 06. You know, if, unless BlackRock's going to turn and say, oh, geez, all these homes we bought, we got to sell them today, which is never going to happen because it's not just the amount of leverage. It's the type of leverage and the strength of that leverage. And, you know, mom and pops have shallower pockets than BlackRock. BlackRock's not going to respond to a margin call the same way. So I don't see just this unbelievable position for, for 10 years prior to 06, you drive out in the country out of these city areas and just say to yourself, who is buying these homes? Well, that's right. not the case right now. I'm not seeing that. I'm not talking to people anecdotally who are all, all in on real estate. I see you know a little bit of it. I see a lot of people who bought second homes, but I don't see a lot of people who bought fifth homes. We're pretty much out of time, of course. I don't know how this yeah. happens so quickly, but tell me about Fred and Ethel. What are we going to do for investing? What, how are you investing? What do you do when you see an, a recession coming or see these rates? How do we do this, Jim? You've done it before. A recession doesn't necessarily mean the stock market cracks. I think that if for me, for my investment, I'm talking about not my trading money, because when you talk about Fred and Ethel, I'm talking about what I do in my investing money. I rebalance every end of the year to my risk tolerance and then then the, that's why you do it. So right at this moment, when I think the S&P could be down 20% within the next two months, then you don't have to panic and start chasing price to get out. So I personally am going to just be confident that I rebalance properly, look for trading opportunities in my trading account, but that's not what we're talking about. But I do think uh, we could see a negative 20% in the S&P and you know, obviously a little bit more in the NASDAQ. But then I think, it's, then I think the Fed's going to blink and we, we'll be fine. And we'll, and, we'll, and we'll be fine. So uh, you have your allocation. You know how much you, you've gotten stocks and bonds. And you're there for the long term. You'll take a look at it in a year, basically. And otherwise, uh, you do need to have something that's going to appreciate as things get inflated. You're losing with cash. I, I mean, we all know that. So uh, you have to, and, and then taxes and they higher prices and so forth. So something that's going to keep up. And stocks are an asset over time that keep up because you get a superior return to the rate of inflation over time. You're going to get that 8%, 9%, 10% return from stocks, and that will compound more quickly than you'll see anything uh, happening from inflation. God willing, we're not going to get to those levels on inflation. <laughs> I don't think we'll see that. Jim Uriel, uh, our great friend on the forecast uh, from the CBOE. Thank you so much, Jim, so much for see being with us. Thank you, Michael. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be back with Dan Mahaffey in just a minute here on The Farcast. We're glad you could join us this week on The Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Dan Mahaffey joins us now. Dan, we had a terrific conversation with Jim Murio about the recession, about the 
Fed, uh, what they get, what they don't get, and what investors should do. And then, of course, when we move from Wall Street to Washington, Dan, we come to you. A lot's going on in Washington, and none of it seems to change very much. Uh, certainly, the temperature and the tenor of conversations doesn't seem to change. There's a COVID relief bill right now, about $10 billion, mm -hmm. so not huge in the, in the trillion-dollar right. world of government funding, and that right now has been stalled because of immigration issues. So Congress is fighting with each other about immigration. What's yeah. going on, Dan? <laughs> right. Uh, well, well, Michael, it's uh, good as always to be talking with you. Thank you. And I think the only ray of hope we have in Washington today is that it's both opening day for baseball and the first day of the Masters. Everything hey. else is everything else is a mess otherwise. Uh, no, what you described there, it's, it's a very good point. The discussion on COVID, it's not a lot of money. Uh, it's taking some of the funds that have already been spent uh, to try and put it towards future vaccines, future testing. Uh, but what's happening, too, is that the Biden administration wants to remove the Title 42 uh, public health restrictions that have kept most of the immigration bottled up at the southern border during the pandemic. As a result, you know, I think that is something that is going to be a, a real political lodestone for the Democrats going into a midterm year. Anything that looks soft on immigration right now is not going to be great for uh, independent voters or people concerned about, you know, it tends to be still the number three issue when you ask voters what they're concerned about. What are uh, the first two issues right now, Dan? Uh, right now, inflation slash economy is number one by, by a huge part. Then you have war in Ukraine down there and then uh, immigration around there. Got it. OK. All right. But so oh. that what they want to do is they want to make Democrats who are vulnerable make a vote on whether the Biden administration can do this to open the border up at this point and potentially have a vote where I don't think it could stop the administration for what it's doing, but potentially have the administration lose a vote. Uh, that would say, you know, because I don't think some of the moderate Democrats are are in the in the right position over this. <laughs> So this is an issue, uh, of course, that could 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 seriously uh, bite the Democrats. But but also we're going to put a covid relief at jeopardy and say, nope, we're not going to provide money for covid relief to continue to fight this. Uh, right. It means it's, a, it's the hostage taking that you yes, have there uh, that, they, that they do in Washington. Yeah. And that, uh, and that and that this is already so bare bones. We've stripped out you know, vaccine assistance for other countries. We've taken, a, this is really just barely what they say they need to just keep testing and, and vaccine operations going and, and surveillance for new variants. One of the other things I see them fighting about, and, and we're going to move on quickly, is how much vacation time that they're affording themselves. And boy, they're going to leave on vacation now, I think today or tomorrow for two weeks. And mm -hmm. then Dan, how, what is it? How many uh, are they going to work uh, between now and the election? Are they going to between now and the election? Yeah, it looks like the calendar has 11 and a half or so working weeks for the House, uh, 13 weeks in session for the Senate between now and uh, early November. 11 and a half weeks they're going to work between now and November. Hey, folks, hey, talk to your boss. See, see what he or she thinks about you coming in 11 weeks. Uh, they're as I as I understand it, they're taking off as vacation August, all of October, uh, and um, uh, a week in September. Is that right? 
pretty close to that. To some fairness, let's not paint all these members with the same brush. There will be some who go on CODEL visits to Ukraine and Europe. There, A lot will be campaigning before the election, uh, but frankly, most of them uh, will be out asking for money and campaigning. Yeah, the congressmen spend how many hours a day uh, on average? Uh, uh, six, six, six to eight hours a day. Six to eight hours a day yeah. from their offices in Washington fundraising. Yeah. So if you, if you think of it as a job that will attract our nation's best and brightest, ask someone, do you want to spend six to eight hours a day begging for money and living in fear of Twitter? Yeah, that's uh, that that's something that I can't imagine why anybody would do. All right. Let's go ahead and shift uh, away from this muck uh, in Washington the, the swamp, if you will, that has never been drained. Uh, they, they've plugged it up in every area that it looked like it could possibly leak. Let's go ahead and look at more serious issues in Ukraine. Not that these aren't serious mm -hmm. issues, but uh, I'm throwing up my hands on Washington for the time being. Ukraine, uh, Putin seems to be pulling back and uh, digging in on the eastern part of Ukraine. What does this mean, mm -hmm. Dan? I think it means that the war is going to be prolonged much longer, that it's going to be moving to a phase of truly attrition warfare. Uh, the Russian idea of quickly moving uh, in days, weeks, or even a month to, to seize Kyiv, to replace the Ukrainian government, their goals of re regime change have been foiled. Uh, and now it's much more of a, a war of attrition in the East over this Donbass and what element of territory uh, that the Russian army wants to seize. This is going to be something that that digs in for a long time. I've had conversations with uh, speakers, uh, you know, experts on Russia this week who say Russia is perhaps looking at this as something of uh, a long war, the first stages of a very long war. It's been something they've been thinking about uh, since 2007, when Putin began his angry screeds against the West in 2008, when they invaded Georgia. Uh, all of this is built towards a, a, a longer term conflict uh, with the West uh, and that we have to be thinking less wishfully about this wrapping up in weeks uh, or quickly moving to to peace and that we're now at the point where this is transitioning to a, a long war of attrition that could take years. Harry points out that I said uh, for the past couple of weeks that uh, despite all of our desires for peace and a quick resolution, we really need to look at the data and be mm -hmm. data dependent here and look where troops are and look what the numbers are and what's happening with the fighting and, and not just have this sort of rose-colored glasses view of what we'd really like to have mm -hmm. happen. Uh, and if it gets entrenched, what does that mean economically as we try to bring the world's consequences back to the investor? This is what we try to decide here and think about on the forecast, be thoughtful about, Dan. So uh, what is Putin's point? I mean, I, I've always been fascinated when you see these world leaders so determined to go to war. And, mm -hmm. and kind of get focused for years and come up with their plan and do it and fail. And now I'm going to trench in and say, here, here, I'm going to stick with this longer. Mm -hmm. What What is his goal? Yeah, well, his goal is to restore Russian power and influence. And if you look at their strategies, though, it's uh, adapting to a new world of geoeconomic competition uh, and access to, to resources, controlling wheat and hydro hydrocarbons, access to the Black Sea, 
uh, demilitarizing Eastern Europe to, to push NATO back. Uh, and that's what you get the sense of. And, and I think it's interesting, you know, certainly that's what Putin espouses. Uh, one, you know, we talk about you, you, you talk about our desires. I, I think when we spoke last week, I called it Western wishful thinking yes. is, is what also pops up. Uh, we also focus often on specific leaders themselves. And of course, you know, Putin is the man in charge. Uh, but if he were to, uh, you know, keel over tomorrow, I don't think that means the war would stop. I don't think that means the the Russian perception of the West would suddenly change. And and because of that, this is a broader struggle to, you know, of a, of a system of theirs, which is a, you know, kind of a mafia state type enterprise uh, and an authoritarian system trying to exert its influence and recreate its own version of a of a, of a Russian empire. Uh, in that region. And that's the their long term goals. If you you know, if it's kind of one of these things you want to say, just stop and listen to what these countries say in their strategies, like why China talks about retaking the territories in Taiwan. Why does Russia say these things they do? They want to remake the the map. And right now, this is where, you know, it's switching from simply quickly changing Ukraine's government to just grinding down the nation. And that's why I think it's also very pivotal in these next few weeks about getting the equipment into Ukraine, the, the kit that they need, because this is the paradox, if you kind of look at the numbers and the military analysts, Michael Kaufman, who's on Twitter, is a great one who looks at this, an expert on this, who says, the paradox is that the Russian military has all the equipment, but not the people right now. Because they're they're worn down, they've committed yeah. most of their actual forces, but they still have a lot of stuff in their back warehouses and their arsenals that they can bring forward. The question is, how quickly can they reconstitute? And does Putin decide to move the Russian economy and people to a total mobilization? His his popularity has been going up in Russia, uh, right? Is what, is what we're hearing on up. You know, they've they've put in all those constraints and stuff on the economic side. You, you know, a lot of people say, oh, look, the rubles back to uh, pre-war levels about, you know, 80 to a dollar, roughly. Right. Uh, you know, if I had 80 rubles, though, would you give me a dollar? Uh, not so much. No, but right. But, uh, you that, could... That's but well, that's what we see on the ticker, of course. Yeah. Um, but so, Dan, how long till all of these economic sanctions hit the Russian populace, population uh, sufficient to the, that they'll turn on Putin. Does that ever happen? Do they, we do don't, they we don't know. Abandon we... Them? You know, part of our, our, our narrative is uh, we're going to hurt them so economically that the oligarchs will, will abandon Putin and then he will kind of collapse and we get no, rid of it. No, if you look at Russian history, what the oligarchs will do is they'll abandon Russia. Yeah, they'll abandon Russia. And they'll focus on their own points of privilege. Point, you they know, don't and care about the people, right? Right. They'll be in Istanbul. They'll be in London. They'll be in Dubai. Uh, this, this is very sad for me. You know, I, I was uh, part of the Bush Gorbachev uh, exchange where I went over uh, to the Soviet Union and helped open their stock markets. 
and they've had very robust stock markets. And they were, they were going through this big phase of Westernization and 70 years of communism fell in 1990, uh, shortly after I'd been there. My mother called me when she heard it and said, oh sure, 70 years of communism, it takes Michael two weeks uh, over, in, uh, over in the Soviet Union and the whole thing collapses, great. Uh, we should have sent you when you were 15 years old, it would have taken you three days. Uh, but, uh, but the people when I went, were welcoming and warm and they were, you know, uh, humanity is humanity. Mm -hmm. And we saw that in each other uh, and we were there to do something together and all right. of that's possible. And now we're back on either sides of the, uh, of the neighborhood and the street skirmishes are back. And, and I keep wondering just on a human level, why, why do well, they here's the, and, and there's, there's, insist upon doing this to us? And, and at some point, we should probably post it online and I could work with my colleague. There's a great reading list we could put together for your listeners, but I'll give you the, the cocktail napkin version of this history is you guys went over in, in 1990s. There was a lot of hope. Open yes. up this, open up the system, capitalism, investment. And look, a lot of the, the shock reforms were, were implemented in ways for better or worse that in turn made the Russian public feel that you guys, the capitalists, were, were gangsters basically looting the Russian economy. The, the failure of the privatization, the corruption of the, West, the Yeltsin years, and I know not you personally, but then the others that came along, the, the oligarchs that first set up, made the Russian people feel that they'd been uh, stripped, you know, their assets had been stripped, they'd been impoverished. And that allowed the security guys, the KGB, the ex-KGBs, the, the Silvokis, Putin and his cronies to rise to power. And what you saw during the 2000s was when they went after Kordakovsky, when they exiled others to London, that was, we had our focus on the war in Afghanistan and, and the war on terror in Iraq. While in Russia, what was going on was the security state, the old KGB guys that had that Cold War view of the world and basically were good at capitalism because they were the corrupt ones getting the secrets in West Germany and setting up the shell companies in France and Vienna. So they understood markets and how to set up slush funds and work with the mafia to get their way. But they also knew that they could take over the, the Russian state but their psychology goes back to this Cold War era. They still see the West as the Cold War enemy. Uh, and that's their, you know, again, comfortable mental furniture that you fall back on for historical comparisons. Uh, but that's their thinking that illuminates a, a broader concept of what they see and what I think we need to increasingly see as the beginning of a long war in the 21st century between democracies, the West, and these authoritarian regimes. Dan Mahaffey is the policy director for the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress, our senior political analyst on the Farcast. Dan, we're out of time. Um, sorry about that. Uh, we will be back, of course, next week with you. Coming up, ladies and gentlemen, a bright star in Wall Street sky, Shannon Sakoshia, is going to be with us. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. 
We invite you to learn more about Heroes Mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. We're so glad you're with us again this week, April the 7th, 2022. Our next guest, ladies and gentlemen, is a first on the Farcast, and I assure you will become a Farcast fan favorite. I promise, ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the brightest stars in Wall Street's sky. Shannon Sakoshi is chief investment officer at Boston Private, um, and is, is she sets all of the overall investment strategy soon to become a part of Silicon Valley Bank, where she will again be the chief investment officer. You have seen uh, Shannon on CNBC. She is a regular contributor. She's on the halftime report. She and I were at a conference last week in Manhattan, sitting on a panel together. She is absolutely brilliant. She is insightful. And as much as anything, on top of being uh, really bright and truly, ladies and gentlemen, a really nice person, um, she is courageous and she will speak her mind. And I assure you, take it from me, I've been doing this a long time. When you see her, take that TV off a of mute and, and listen to Shannon. Shannon, welcome to the Farcast. Thank you so much for having me. We are very glad you're here. Uh, so, Shannon, it seems to be a bit of a rocky start to the year. Stocks were down, uh, bond prices are down, and yields are rising. We saw a report from Wells Fargo this morning suggesting a 50 basis point hike at the May meeting, another 50, points, 50 basis points in June, three more over the balance of the year, three more next year, three to three and a quarter percent Fed rate uh, by June or so of 2023. What do you make of all of this? And people are talking about recessions and, and stocks uh, seem to be kind of holding in and earnings aren't bad. Tell us what you think. Well, I think the, you know, the, the name of the game here is that um, you know, we've been all complaining here on Wall Street for so many months about the Fed being behind the curve. And apparently they hurt, hurt us. Um, and so they're going to make sure that we know that they are doing something about it. Uh, no, I mean, I think there are two things that are happening here. One, um, you know, obviously they were a bit behind the curve if you look at the bond market and, and there was an expectation that they would have to be aggressive this year. Uh, the additional aggressiveness, I think, is coming from two camps. Number one, uh, we obviously have this war in Ukraine, which is exacerbating, you know, the inflation in food and energy. Um, and that is something that while we look at the CPI core on a regular basis and sort of try to take out the um, effects of food and energy. I think if you think about the Fed and thinking about price stability, how does that price stability trickle down to lower income families? And that's, they're really feeling that today in, in food and energy prices. And so the other thing that's happening is that it's pushing out this peak. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was looking at, you know, from September and October of last year, we were looking at inflation to be peaking in March. Um, yes. and, and certainly there's no indication of that. And so 
in as much as I think the Fed has been pressured to try to maintain or get back to the level of price stability they're looking for, I think they're indicating that, yes, we're going to be as aggressive as possible to try to bring these prices down. I, but, you know, the challenge here is this is a, you know, supply side issue. And, you know, as long as we continue to see the pressure on the supply side, whether it's through inputs or end goods, supply chain disruption, concerns about supply chain disruption, which, which weigh on, you know, the way that manufacturers are think about, thinking about pricing their products, you know, in the end, that is going to continue to be an issue. And so I just wonder if um, the concerns about recession are, are, may be warranted given the fact that we may end up in a situation where we still have elevated inflation by the end of the year, even if the Fed is really aggressive in trying to slow the demand side. Okay, so you think that uh, the concerns are, I, I have said that I think we're gonna have a recession uh, in the second half of 23. And, and I, and I uh, should also offer the caveat, ladies and gentlemen, that there are fewer things more difficult to time than an economic cycle. You think you can time a market cycle? I will tell you, you can't time the stock market, uh, more or less, you know, the economy. But all of the pieces are in place for a recession and the pieces necessary to assemble a soft landing here economically are very scarce. So the odds are there. The timing, um, you know, who knows? Uh, but, uh, you know, you, we, we, you, you touched on a couple of things there. You said peak inflation, and we were talking about that, Shannon. Does that, I, I'm sort of thinking, is that the peak inflation rate? So if inflation is running at, let's say, 8%, could that have peaked at 8% in March and then maybe we'll be at 6% by the end of the year and 5% uh, next year? Something like that still means we have more, much higher than average inflation, but, but maybe the peak could be now, or do, are you suggesting that we could have 10% inflation by the summer? No, I think we, we're right around peak. Um, but I do think that number one, I think we thought the peak was going to be a little bit lower number, right? I think it was, we were thinking more like six, six and a half percent um, yeah. rather than- and Well, we were hoping peak. anyway, yeah. Right. And um, no, I, I think that that improvement in trend uh, was, I was anticipating that that would occur faster. You know, I would really were, was thinking that we'd get back down, you know, closer to four by the end of the year. And I think that with, um, food and energy being where they're at. I just don't think that's, that seems possible at this point. I don't, I do think that we're setting ourselves up for a longer term persistent level of inflation, but I don't think it's going to be a 5%. Um, and I want to, I want to touch on, you know, one of the things that is a, a requirement, uh, you know, in my mind for a recession um, is a, is a pretty marked increase in the unemployment rate, you know, because yes. then we start to see that, that real impact on consumer behavior. And so I think, although there are not as many reasons necessarily to think that we could avoid a recession in 23, I think the one big thing that, that is a reason that I think we can maybe push that out into 2024 is just the number of job openings. Um, you know, what companies do is they don't lay off people first, right? They actually take those job openings down off the board um, and say, okay, we're not going to be, we're not going to hire into this slowing growth environment. We've got 11 million job openings in the United States. And we've got a 3.6% unemployment rate. So to me, there's a little bit more cushion than we've had historically in terms of when employers start to cut jobs. Yep. And so I actually think that that gives us a little bit longer runway before we see that meaningful consumer impact 
The other thing I would point out, and you know this just as well as I do, is that this K-shaped recovery is just going to continue to be more K-shaped. Um, you know, we're, you know, 75% of stimulus payments were saved. Um, and, you know, the majority of people saving those stimulus payments, uh, you know, on the upper end from an income perspective, haven't spent those. And so there is a likelihood that consumer spending could slow just from a sentiment perspective, but not necessarily because people don't have the money to spend. And so if we don't see those jobs being eliminated and there's so many openings still for labor mobility, you know, I think we, I think we get ourselves, you know, probably six or nine months longer to a recession than we would have otherwise. And, and, and the timing of it, I, I, I agree. Uh, again, yeah. trying to time these things. And so could it, could it be 2024? Sure, it could be 2024. Yeah. Uh, but you, know, you talked about that K-shaped recovery. And one of the things that I worry that the Fed may be missing here is that you know, the, the bottom 50% of the socioeconomic America uh, uh, did benefit from all of those transfer payments and did save some of that money. But uh, those transfer payments have stopped uh, to that bottom 50% of the socioeconomic country. And um, those folks are the ones who are getting hit most by the higher gasoline and fuel and energy and food costs and, and shelter costs and rents going up and everything else. So I'm kind of concerned that there is a demand destruction um, uh, if two thirds of the economy is driven by this consumer and half of those consumers don't have any more money to spend or real purchasing power and the other half with money all of a sudden have a negative sentiment and a turn in their willingness to spend because they're concerned about the environment they see. I think the Fed could be really hiking and hiking and hiking and fighting, you know, dragons in the closet that might not exist anywhere other than their imagination. Have I got it wrong? No, I think it's a great point. The counter to that, or I guess the counter and, and sort of this parallel narrative that I'm starting to spend more time thinking about is, you know, we've, we've been focused uh, for a very long time on the monetary side um, and monetary policy being the, the driver of liquidity um, in the market. And you're right, those, those stimulus payments, I mean, if you look at the consumer data, you know, for the for the six to eight weeks after each of those stimulus payments, there was a market right. increase um, in consumer spend in retail sales. I mean, you could see it, it's, it's easily charted. Yep. And so do we move to an environment where, and I think we discussed this on our, on our panel last week, do we move to an environment where this idea of stimulus from a fiscal perspective, not necessarily from the federal level always, but at the state level, you know, things like gas taxes, things, do, do we start to move into an environment where we are seeing government step in from a stimulus perspective? Does that allow the Fed, to your point, does that allow them to maybe take the foot off the gas in terms of, um, in, in terms of their policy because they're saying, hey, some of this is being offset you know, fiscally? And you know, I don't know. I don't know what the appetite is. I've been surprised. Uh, I think it was on one of the Sunday morning shows. Uh, one of the governors came on and said that he had cut the gas tax um, in his state. And he said, I don't right. know why everybody's not doing this. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that is sort of immediately stimulative. Um, and it's not necessarily something that, you know, in, a, in states that have strong revenue um, from a balance sheet perspective, that's something that could easily be done in this near term to ease the pain. So for me, I'm just wondering where that trade-off lies, and maybe it is this sort of rolling trade-off 
over time where monetary and fiscal policy is going back and forth to try to support, not necessarily doing anything to impact the bottom line on inflation, but maybe we're able to accept higher inflation in the future because there's this expectation of continued stimulus coming in different forms. Yeah, and that gets into that balance sheet expansion and the debt expansion because the money's got to come from somewhere. Uh, tax revenues have been okay, right? And states have really had a boon. I mean, they got a lot of government stimulus dollars and this real estate boom is driving huge gains in property taxes. Properties that have doubled in value, that means their property taxes have doubled in value. So that's structural. That's not just going to go away. Uh, so, And this seems also to me to be a supply, I've said earlier in the forecast, a supply driven, the supply shortage in real estate's driving these higher prices as opposed to the speculation and deterioration in credit that we saw in the bubble of 2008. I don't that we might be ahead of ourselves on prices, but I don't think we're in bubble territory. Just, just my thought there. Shannon, uh, we need to talk, we got two minutes. Tell me what you're telling your Fred and Ethel investor. Uh, dear Fred and Ethel are sitting there thinking, okay, recession, what do I do? And I'm 60 years old and, and, I, and I'm very healthy. I've, I've got a 20 year runway, even though I'm 60 and I do want to retire. What do I do with my couple of million dollars in my portfolio. Well, you and I both know that over time, you know, whatever time horizon we want to look at, as long as it's long enough, and, and that's probably excess of five years, you know, equities are going to be higher. And I think that we still want to make sure that we're positioning uh, portfolios for growth, even more important now in terms of purchasing power, right? You, you've got inflation where it is, whether it's 5% or 4% or 3%, that's still higher than it's been historically. And so we want to make sure that we're, we're, we're we have exposure to stocks, even if there is some additional volatility. Um, what types of stocks, right? What, what, what types of companies do well in maybe a slower or more challenging growth environment? Right. You know, quality companies, uh, companies that have free cash flow, companies that have, you know, the ability to buy back shares. Quality is our number one focus right now. And thinking about owning companies give you a cash flow, right? Maybe you don't have to go out so far on the risk spectrum and fixed income if you're getting a cash flow in, in forms of a dividend from your equities, right? We also, you know, we're, we're kind of giving our clients the heads up that, you know, this normalizing bond rate, interest rate environment is good for bonds, right? And yes. so in a couple of years, we'll actually be able to engineer some real income out of their bond portfolio. Again, we won't have to go out so far on the risk spectrum. They can ratchet back their equity exposure a little bit in terms of income and, and gain in the portfolio. So I think we're setting our stage for lower total return, lower absolute returns, but we're focusing more on where those returns are coming from and making sure that we're focusing on areas that are sustainable and that can continue to do well even if we are in a more challenging economic environment. You think we have positive returns for stocks in 2022? I do. I think we end up positive on the year this year. I threw out the number uh, in an interview this week at 6%. Um, uh, my economist in-house said, oh, I think you've got rose-colored glasses on, but, but I'm also looking at earnings and I'm still looking at purchasing power and I'm still seeing some cash coming back in the markets. I don't see things. What do you think? 
Um, we, I, I was asked a similar question. I said between six and eight, um, you know, and so maybe I'm a little rosy as well. Uh, but I, I do think there are things that are happening in the market. I think we're going to continue to see buybacks from big companies. I think they're going to take advantage of this weakness. I think that we are going to see investors continuing to try to find quality um, in their equity holdings. And I think that the bond market, those returns in the first quarter were um, very difficult to digest particularly because there's an income component there that's not being picked up and won't be picked up till the back half of the year in terms of rising rates. And so I think that all that the first quarter did was make people see that even though equities are down, there's still more growth potential in the back half of the year for them. And so I, I don't think we're going to have this massive reallocation out of stocks. I think too, that the investor is still coming to the terms coming to terms with this idea that the Fed does really mean at this time. And every yeah. one of these statements and Lael Brainerd, I mean, uh, keep shocking markets. And I don't know why in God's name markets are shocked. They keep telling you what they're gonna do. In fact, I wish they'd just go ahead and do it and quit talking about it. We've got it, Fed. You, you've broadcast this to us to us enough. I wish they'd get just get on with it. Uh, Shannon Sakosha is Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private. Uh, so next going to be uh, as, she, as they are becoming a part of SVB or the old Silicon Valley bank shares. It is a powerhouse. And this is so exciting and so cool. I think, Shannon, you will be the powerhouse within the powerhouse. What a good move for SVB to get Shannon Sakosha. Thank you so much for being with us on the Farcast. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you guys soon. Talk to you soon, ladies and gentlemen. That's it for another week on the Farcast. We will be back next week doing our best for you to cover Wall Street. Washington, and the world. In Naples, Florida, I'm Michael Farr. We'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Farcast. Thanks to Michael's guests, Jim Urio, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest, Shannon Sakoshia. We love hearing from you every week, and we try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Hightower Advisors or Farm Miller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farm Miller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help. And I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Please share the Farcast with friends and colleagues. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Bar Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. 
Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Hightower Advisors, LLC, Farm Miller in Washington, or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates assume no liability for action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented as to entity entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisor for related questions.